This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about Washington State. And actually, we're going to be talking about Washington for a bit here. For this podcast, we'd like to pull in some national names to discuss national issues. Regular listeners have heard some of those talks in the last few weeks alone, from Anthony Fauci, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and Ezra Klein. But we also spend a lot of time discussing what's happening in our own backyard. For the next handful of episodes, we'll be focusing on those conversations, starting with a kind of state of the state, a series of conversations from the 2022 Crosscut Festival that involves statewide leaders, including Attorney General Bob Ferguson, Superintendent of Public Instruction Chris Reichdahl, and, to kick things off right here, Governor Jay Inslee. Inslee is now in the middle of his third term in the governor's mansion, and for most of that decade, he's remained a relatively popular politician. More recently, though, his approval ratings have sagged under the weight of historic crises. None of his own making, really, but as the governor, he is responsible, or largely responsible, for how the state responds. The COVID-19 pandemic, in particular, has become a defining event for the governor, who, by the way, is a Democrat. But that definition really depends on where you focus your attention, and, of course, where you sit on the political spectrum. This interview, conducted on May 7, 2022, covers a lot of ground, but it's particularly interesting to catch Inslee at a crossroads for covid As the patience for state-mandated restrictions and requirements has waned, the threat of the virus remains. It's a tough spot. And the interviewer here, KOW's Bill Radke, does an excellent job of navigating the contours of the governor's approach and challenging him. This conversation and all other conversations on the power and policy track at the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by Amazon which would like to share the following message. Amazon strives to be Earth's most customer-centric company, Earth's best employer, and Earth's safest place to work. Learn more at aboutamazon.com. This session is also sponsored by FairVote Washington, which would like to share this message. FairVote Washington is bringing more choice, more voice, and more say to Washington voters through ranked choice voting. Learn more at fairvotewa.org. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Governor, welcome and thank you for doing this. You bet. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, starting with uh, with the news, that's what I that's what I do in the news business. We had the U.S. Supreme Court appearing ready to make abortion rights a state by state decision, and the day after that news leaked, Governor, you said, "quote We are going to fight like hell to keep Washington a pro choice state." Why is that a hellacious fight? Is there any chance of Washington not being a pro choice state? Well, as you know, we were the first state in the country to actually vote to establish this right of choice, and it has been zealously guarded since. 
But yes, it is a risk. Look, there is one of our parties that is intent uh, to the extent humanly possible to take away the right of choice from women in the state of Washington and across America. It is clear it is a statewide and national effort of that party. And if they would obtain uh, a majority in our legislature and or a governorship, they would uh, take an action to the extent humanly possible to remove this right. And uh, we can't allow that. So that's one of the reasons why it's important to vote. But we also have to do the things now that can be helpful. I think we should consider a constitutional amendment so that the Republican Party would not be able to do that, even if they did get control of our legislature at some point. I think we should do the things that are necessary to make sure that people here cannot be criminally prosecuted in other states and make sure that services are available. So those are the things we do need to do. And I'm really sad to say that. I, this, should, this has been, you know, there's certain things that we thought were well established, that you'd be able to marry people of a different race, that you'd be able to, uh, to have access to birth control. These things have been well-established law for decades. And now we have a party that wants to go backwards. I think it's very unfortunate. We have to be alert to this. Yeah, you're referring to the draft opinion from Justice Alito saying that the U.S. Constitution does not spell out a right to privacy that protect abortion rights. And a lot of people, as you just said, are, are drawing a line. They're saying, well, then by that logic, uh, lots of other uh, yep. legal protections could go. So what are the what are the votes in the Washington state legislature for a constitutional amendment uh, codifying a protection to abortion rights? I don't know yet, but I will be talking to legislative leaders uh, to find out. We have to have a supermajority to get that uh, to the ballot. And, uh, you know, it might take another election cycle to get there. But this is one of the reasons it's important to vote. For anyone who says voting does not have an impact on lives, this is it. So anyone who knows, uh, you know, anybody out there who thinks, well, it's not worth voting. Well, this is a privacy right of uh, important dimension in our state. There is an effort in our state and in the nation to remove this in total of, uh, from the women of our state. We need to defeat that. We need to, to be active at the ballot box. Governor, you're giving your opinion on this controversial issue, and I'm con I, I, I trust that that is a majority opinion in Washington state. But as you very well know, we have millions of people in the state who oppose abortion rights. And how do you think they're going to react? And how are you going to govern that situation uh, of these people who feel that they're living on the wrong side of a cultural divide in Washington state? Well, hopefully people uh, continue to want to be committed to democracy and making decisions uh, based on our democratic traditions of people voting. And then we follow the democratic principles. Now, that is a risk. We saw a, a defeated president stage, attempt to stage a coup to avoid the ramifications of democracy. We are now seeing criminal prosecutions by the hundreds of people who were involved in that coup. So yes, it is a concern of people who want to uh, neglect democracy and throw it over as, as a failed experiment. I think we need to resist that and be very strong to follow the democratic principles of making decisions based on democratic systems. And sometimes it doesn't roll your way. You know, there's a number of things that I have advocated that have not been, have not won public support, but I accept democracy and God help us all if people abandon that principle. You know, Vladimir Do you Putin doesn't belong in democracy, believe in democracy and look what happens. So I guess what I'd say is, yes, we have disagreements that are, they're strong on occasion. 
but I hope that we all remain committed to this gift that we have been given by, by our ancestors of democracy. Well, you mentioned President Trump, who's not going to be around forever. Um, do you, how much do you worry about division and a lack of unity in Washington state versus uh, an acceptance of uh, sometimes you win in a democracy and sometimes you lose? What, how, what's, what's your state of mind? What are you seeing in the state of Washington on, on that score? Well, I'm going to start on the positive. What I've seen is a state that has been remarkably uh, progressive in moving the ball forward with great success. So here's what I say, you know, from the 30,000 foot level. We have been judged in the state of Washington as the best state looking at all the criteria, health, education, business development, worker rights. U.S. News and World Report just said we're the number one state in the United States to live and work. Oxfam this last year said we're the best place to work during the COVID uh, epidemic. A few years ago, CNBC said we were the number one place to do business. Uh, the Nurses Association last week said we're the best place to be a nurse. And thank goodness for all the nurses and medical people who have been working so hard in COVID. We have made extraordinary progress in our state. We have the best climate change laws in the United States. We just implemented the best paid family medical leave that people are enjoying today to be able to to experience that relationship with their young child. We've had the, some of the largest wage growth, uh, twice as, almost twice as much as the national average the last few years. So I guess what I'm saying is, look, there's disagreements, but our state is moving forward dramatically with tremendous improvement. And I'm proud to be in the state that is ranked number one in so many different ways. So I, I hate to, to, to focus on the negative and realizing how much positive that's gone forward. Our response to COVID has been one of, if not the most successful in the United States. And I want to help everybody uh, involved in this uh, as teachers and employers and healthcare people and crosscut fans. Uh, we've been very, very successful in our state in so many different ways. So I tend well, to, to look at it in a positive way. Well, you, you bring up uh, the pandemic and you know, there's another case where as governor of everybody in Washington state, I know that, that you know you've got to be aware and sensitive to the concerns of people who who don't agree here and and so for example what is your answer to people who use the slogan my body my choice um to oppose your vaccine mandates well uh this is a deep discussion of course i guess what i would say is um listen this this has involved people of different views uh, on the response to covid but if we can just look at at the facts of the matter if you, I think it's been very successful, even with the, the deaths that we have experienced. We, if we had the same uh, death rate as, let's say, Mississippi, we would have had 19,000 more people lose their lives in the last couple of years. That's more people that can fit into Climate Pledge Arena. 19,000 people are alive today, I believe, in substantial part about some of the decisions we made to do common sense things, to wear masks where appropriate, to get vaccinations and allow vaccinations to be available because we made these decisions. Now, it's very difficult for me to think that policies that save 19,000 Washingtonians' lives somehow was an imperfect policy. I just can't reach that conclusion. And now we've made some good decisions. We're back to work. We're back to our restaurants. We're back to school. We're still doing some safe things. By the way, before I forget, I hope people will get their booster. We do have more need for people to get the booster because if you had the original vaccination a year and a half ago, 
a lot of that immunity has worn off. This is one of the things we need more work to do to get people boosted because we do have increasing numbers uh, right now. Now, the other issue is I've heard people say that some of the things we did were unconstitutional. Well, you know, that's just false. And the reason I know that is we have a way of deciding what's constitutional in our country. And that is we have a very vigorous, independent judicial system that makes a decision on that. Uh, my decisions have been challenged 47 times in the courts, both federal and state. They have been judges appointed by Republicans and Democrats at the state and federal level. And 47 times in a row, judges have confirmed the, the uh, constitutionality and the legitimate authority of making these decisions. So I believe uh, policies that have saved maybe 19,000 people that have allowed us to recover our economy with one of the most robust economies in the United States that have been confirmed to be constitutional and have not been challenged by our state legislature, our state government, judicial, legislative, and executive branches have worked very successfully throughout this COVID pandemic. Um, but we're okay. not out of the woods, as you know. The numbers are going up. There are new varieties coming on. We have to be alert, and I'm glad people are doing that. Well, if if people thought that uh, judiciaries were not politicized before this week, I, I, I think that's uh, um, that opinion might be changing of the independence of our judiciary. But I want to ask about the I totally understand the logic that more vaccination means fewer infections. Um, but but can the data ever really prove that uh, Alaska and Utah report a lower death rate than Washington states and they didn't make government employees get vaccinated? Uh, we, our hospitalizations are, are we don't see like we have a, an issue with overcrowded hospitals right now. Why not uh, back off on the vaccine mandates? Well, I think that uh, the, the combination, I would not uh, attribute our success to any one single enterprise or activity. We took a comprehensive approach. We decided to make decisions based on the best available science. And the science has shown, I think, quite unequivocally, there are some things that have a significant way to reduce deaths. One is vaccination. Two is the use of masks. Three is to prevent crowding. And at certain points during the height of these pandemics, we've had to interrupt our lives and our work lives and, and very painfully some of our education for our children. Those three things we know unequivocally um, uh, have a role in, in, in reducing deaths in, in our state. And I don't think there's any way anybody can argue against those conclusions. Now, exactly what percentage of those 19,000 were saved by which of those three policies? You know, there's no way epidemiology, epidemiologically to ferret out that with precision. But we do know that by the thousands, people are alive today and are gonna enjoy Mother's Day tomorrow and happy Mother's Day to everyone, because we've taken this suite of policies. And I just I just am proud of our state that has been willing to pull together on that. And people have pulled together. Uh, you know, well, teachers have been innovative, nurses have been radiologists, the whole medical community. People have pulled together on this, and I'm glad we've, uh, we've done what we've done. I would, I would think that people who who are tired or maybe they opposed it from the beginning or maybe they just think it's time to rescind vaccine mandates, I would think they would at least want to hear you on your list of pros grapple with the cons of you know, thousands of people being either fired or at least saying they felt forced to quit because of, of the vaccine mandate. I mean, it, does it go, and then we can get into emergency powers as well, but when does, how do you know when to ever end uh, that mandate? 
Well, listen, let's think about what it's done. It's been very successful policy. We have, I think it's 96% of state employees uh, are on the job and have complied and have remained in their professional responsibility. And when I announced this policy, people said everyone, you know, half the state workforce was going to leave. That simply did not happen. We had, you know, like 4%, 3 or 4% of people decided that they did not want to comply right. with this health requirement. So it's been very successful as far as its compliance. And it has saved lives. Now, listen, you, this is very um, visceral with me, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Um, I have gone to too many funerals of people who did not get vaccinated, who were state employees before we had this mandate. I mean, I went down to, to Grays Harbor area. We left, we lost a correctional worker who was not vaccinated. And when, and I remember listening, his nine-year-old daughter uh, spoke at his memorial. And it just, it just captured my heart and head to think that those children are losing their, their parents because of a simple failure to get vaccination. And I think the state has an obligation both to reduce infection rates and to reduce hospitalization rates so that everybody can get into a hospital. And to some degree, we have some obligation to our employees to keep them safe and on the job. We, we can't lose employees because of, of death. And we have, we've lost two state troopers. We had a state legislator who didn't get vaccinated. We had one or two correctional employees. This is very painful to see these deaths that are, that are frankly, totally unnecessary. So um, now, now, as far as your question as to when we, when we change that, it's when it makes sense. It's certainly not at the moment because we have uh, increasing rates now. They've gone up 30 or 40% in the last several weeks. Unfortunately, we know that there are new variants that have come on in various places, including New York and South Africa that appear to be more infectious than some of the existing variants. So it's not right now. It's when it makes sense that that we can uh, eliminate any requirement and not experience more death. So um, we hope that we get on top of this as soon as we can. I've uh, got an appointment to get my uh, young twins boosted uh, tomorrow. I'm getting uh, boosted myself. I'm uh, my Great. second booster I'm now eligible for. Um, but but let's talk about your powers as governor to require people to do things that they that they don't you know, whether they want to or not. The governor of Oregon has rescinded her COVID emergency powers declaration. When are you going to do that? When it makes sense to do that, and when it's no longer necessary to protect Washingtonians, which is not at the moment. There are 16 states that currently, because of the statutory uh, structure of their states, uh, have emergency orders in place. And there are some things we, you know, we've eliminated, I don't know, two thirds and 95% of anything that people are aware of in their daily lives. We have already removed those. We removed our restrictions on businesses. We removed our restrictions on schools. You know, we've, we've eliminated the vast majority of these things that would affect uh, people's lives. There are a couple of things we still need. We, we still need to be able to have uh, nurses be uh, remove some of the requirements so they can do their nursing job. Uh, there's some requirements about uh, some trucking stuff. And there's, a, there's a couple small things that we still need to have emergency authority. And, you know, the, listen, there's a piece of paper that allows us to do those small things, um, and they need to continue at least at the moment. 
Well, the, the emergency powers left are there, there are vaccine mandates. There are some, there are masking requirements in healthcare. What are the other big ones? Well, uh, those are probably the two most significant. As I indicated, there's a couple of what I would consider minor ones. We've, yeah. There's a requirement that nurses get a certain level of uh, continuing medical education that they don't have time to do right now. We waive that. There's some small things about yeah. you know, trucking hours, how long people can drive trucks and the like. Those are quite minor, but I but, would consider the vast majority um, have been removed. As far as the, and I, most of those states that do still have an emergency powers declaration at least have, have given a date when it's going to pause or end. And the governor of Oregon, this is now we're getting to the principle of this governor, the Oregon, uh, Oregon governor said that these powers cannot and should not go on forever, that the powers must be used only when absolutely necessary as they temporarily alter the normal balance of power. And you have uh, Republican leaders and, and not just Republicans saying, okay, the, the emergency powers uh, that, that the legislature has granted to you did not anticipate emergencies that go on for years and years and we're in our third year now. So on yeah. the principle that of, a, of, a, of a separation of power and giving elected legislators a chance to sign off or reauthorize the emergency declaration, what about any of that? Well, first off, I think it's a legitimate question. You know, we, we should be asking questions like this about, you know, separation of powers. But the reality of this is this has not been some rogue executive running rampant like an elephant through the tall grass of our civil liberties. The legislature now has had two or three opportunities to rescind or contravene any of the, the actual uh, uh, rules or protocols that I've announced. And you know what? They have confirmed them. Not only have they not repealed them, they have actually confirmed them, including a bunch of Republican votes uh, in 2021, to actually confirm the things we have done. So to some degree, this is an artificial debate that I don't think we have to have because the legislative branch has been in agreement with the executive branch on these decisions. The judicial system has also been in agreement with the executive branch. There is no separation of powers disagreement. We're aligned at the hip on these policies. Now, maybe there's a few Republicans that aren't, but the vast majority of Washington state legislators are. They've now had two or three sessions to contravene the things that I have proposed, and they have not done so. Why? Because they've recognized that they have been successful. So I consider this a little bit of an abstract uh, argument that we don't need to have right now. We need to keep going forward as a state together, and that's what we're doing. Well, I mean, principle is an abstract thing, but I think you know that principle matters. And not. And let's talk about practic practicality. Um, you know, we won't always, you're not always going to be governor, and, uh, and who knows what the legislative majority is going to be. So there's that question, too. What about the, you know, should, should any governor have uh, this much power to keep an emergency declaration going indefinitely? Well, I wish that no other governor will ever experience this before. I don't know another time in the history of the state of Washington where a governor has been called upon to make these tough calls, and they are tough calls. The things we've done have been very difficult for people. When restaurants had to close for a certain period of time, that was difficult on them. It was a difficult decision. So I hope no governor has faced with this type of decision-making that I've been faced with that has been unprecedented in our state's history. That's the first thing I will say. But again, what I wanna reiterate is we have a system where the governors can be countermanded. 
the legislature at any moment could have countermanded any single one of the of the you know probably several dozen decisions that I've made and they have agreed with every one of those decisions and the reason I say that is that they have not even made an attempt to uh, uh, at least the majority an attempt to remove our protocols so I keep coming back to my central point bill we have been unified on this across our branches of our democratic system and I think it is inured greatly to our benefit so uh, I think we're going to stick with the Constitution of Democracy, which we're, where everybody agrees, the governor, the legislature, the judicial, that's not a problem. And that's the situation. You're listening to the governor of Washington State, Jay Inslee, and we'd like to hear from you. Uh, I'd like to ask some of your questions. So get your question in the chat section and we'll ask the governor some of those soon. Uh, let's see if we can cover some other topics today, Governor. Uh, affordability. Seattle's an economic driver for the whole state of Washington. It's also one of America's most unaffordable cities. What are you doing at the state level to make homes, uh, for example, more affordable in the Seattle area? Well, number one, let's talk about why we have this affordability uh, crisis. It is the, generally, it's a dynamic of two things. Number one, we're the best place to live in the United States, according to all the rankings that I just read at the top of the show. As a result, Half of America wants to live in Western Washington and Eastern Washington. So people are moving here by the tens of thousands because of our robust economy, because of our good schools, because of the best, one of the best healthcare systems in the United States, because of our paid family leave, because of all the things we've done to make this such an attractive and successful place. And we have not built enough housing to house the new people who are coming to Washington State. That's just the fundamental problem. So we're trying to approach this in two ways. One, we're trying to build more housing directly by using um, uh, our public funds in the state treasury. We had an $800 million, actually closer to $900 million appropriation this year so that we can build more housing for folks that are, are driven out by high housing and rental prices. That's the most sort of frontal assault on this problem. But we do have to do other things to allow more construction of housing, including removing some of the artificial barriers to actually being able to build housing. And one of those is our restrictive zoning ordinances, which prohibit housing from being built, even when folks want to build it. And vast swaths of some of our major cities, uh, you can't build housing. You can't build a duplex. You can't build a fourplex. And we have to have more dense uh, housing if we're going to house all the tens of thousands of people coming here. That's a simple fact. And I think this simple fact has been sort of um, buried under some of our other controversial issues. Uh, this is one thing we did not have success on in the legislature this year, and we will now be uh, initiating another discussion because we simply have to have room to build more housing and dense housing in some of our urban core. So that remains to be done. Now the third, we need to execute rapidly on our homelessness crisis. Uh, this is clearly a crisis, and we can't wait years to solve this problem. That's why I insisted on, in some of that $900 million, uh, more than a third of it to go to rapid housing. We need to get people into converted motels. We need to get them into tiny home villages. We need to get them into supported housing where they have, we need to have more shelter space as well. And we need to do those things in weeks and months, not decades. So I'm very dedicated to this. There's going to be some tension on this with some of our uh, cities that, frankly, have not cooperated well enough on this. So 
right. in fact, that meeting yesterday on the subject to make sure that we get rapid response to this. And so people have a place to go that are not on our right of ways. And I'm dedicated to that. Well, you're right. The, the, a lot of this power rests in the cities. And of course, it's not just Seattle. It's uh, many, many cities, especially in Western Washington. <laughs> I don't I haven't been to Spokane in a while. But um, but you, you mentioned zoning within cities. What about the State Growth Management Act that preserves rural areas and restricts growth to, to more urban areas? Do, do you agree that that makes housing more expensive? Or do you want to change that? Well, to some degree, but we're not going to build subdivisions up to the border of Mount Rainier National Park. It is just not in the value system of the state of Washington. Our open space is a treasured asset. Again, it's one of the reasons so many people move here because our quality of life is so high that we've got forests and and rivers and uh, to place to recreate. So we don't want to eliminate that. We also can't solve this problem by just thinking we're going to have people move, you know, another 40 miles away from the downtown core and then have to build freeways all the way out to these places. So that's really not a solution, both because of the geospatial situation, the costs and the environmental degradation that happens. We have to increase uh, the housing closer to where people work and where they shop. That's just a physical necessity. And I hope that we'll succeed on that in the next session. Talking about money still, is there anything you can do about inflation? I know the Fed is raising interest rates. Some people want you to lift our gas taxes, at least for a while. Are, are you doing anything about that kind of unaffordability? Well, we're doing things, a whole host of things to help people through these difficult times. As I've indicated, $900 million to help people through their, their housing uh, uh, challenges with, with housing costs, inflation. We have uh, the best uh, financial aid package in America for our students so that they can finance a college education and resist inflation in that regard. We just passed a law to, to reduce uh, uh, medical inflation by capping at $35 the cost of insulin. We're moving, and this is somewhat more long-term, to try to reduce some of the supply chain problems we've had by making sure we have good access to our ports. Uh, we are trying to um, uh, uh, reduce this problem of people not having enough training to do these jobs, which then creates a supply chain problem. So we've had 13,000 students in our Career Connect Learning Program to learn apprenticeships. Um, so we are taking steps, but there is a reality here that we just have to face. Look, the world has been hit by you know triple whammies of COVID, which has disrupted the supply chain, which has created some of this inflation. We now have a madman in Russia starting a totally unnecessary award, which has interrupted uh, a variety of things. And I'm concerned about food prices associated with Putin's uh, madness. Um, we've had uh, the necessity that we had to keep our economy afloat during the COVID crisis so it didn't crater. And all of these things combined that are international forces that, you know, frankly, the governor of Washington is not going to solve single handedly, but we can support our people through this. And again, this is one of the reasons we've been ranked the best place to live in the United States. It's because we have done that. We are supporting people. We've created a, 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 a working families tax credit that takes place to give lower income people. We've passed a tax revision and capital gains that won't put the burden on working people, but putting it on the ultra wealthy instead. Uh, we are doing these things to support our people through these difficult times. Can I ask you about the capital gains tax? You were saying earlier uh, that, look, we live in a democracy and, uh, and the judiciary has been supporting my decisions. 
Well, the courts have not been supporting this capital gains tax. It's lost in court so far. Uh, there is an initiative campaign to repeal it, even if it does win. Uh, voters have rejected um, uh, taxes. There's a, I realize there's a fight about, is it an income tax, is it an excise tax? But isn't that a case where, uh, where democracy and your constituents are, are speaking against this capital gains tax? No, no, that is certainly not the case, Bill. First, the, the elected representatives passed this in the state legislature. I'm elected three times. I won by half a million votes. Now, of course, the guy I beat still says he won the race, even though he lost by a half a million votes. But uh, no, our democracy has passed this. And I'll just share some information with you. There was a poll I saw yesterday, and I, I won't tell you the exact numbers, but I can tell you if, it was, if this was held today, this would go down to a re this effort to repeal the capital gains tax would go down to a resounding defeat, resounding defeat. And the reason is, is because people think that the ultra wealthy amongst us can be the folks to share a tiny, tiny little bit of burden. This affects just a couple thousand families of the ultra wealthy. It's over 250,000 doesn't apply to retirement accounts or, you know, homes or the like. The people are supportive of this because they know that they want fairness. And right now our system is producing incredible wealth and we don't think we should put the burden on helping people on working people so uh, and uh, you know one judge in douglas county made a ruling on this this will now go to the state supreme court and if i had a dollar a bet i'd bet uh, i'd bet a lot more than a dollar actually that they will uphold this on a constitutional basis so no i think the people do think we need more fairness in our economic system including our tax system and i believe that the, that's how they'll vote Governor, we're just about to take some uh, viewer listener questions here. Um, we haven't, we barely talked about climate change. And I wonder, you know, we, it's obviously of great interest uh, to you and, and to the world. And we, however, we're just one state in this globe. And I wonder what you expect Congress to actually do about climate change that, that, that sticks and is guaranteed. Well, we would like Congress to follow the leadership of the state of Washington, and the world would be a much better place if they did. Are they going to? Stay tuned. Obviously, the president is trying to wring a vote out of Senator uh, from West Virginia to allow the climate change measures, or some of them that we have already passed in Washington, to become national policy. This is another place where the state of Washington is leading the nation. We have the best zero uh, carbon electrical grid bill in the United States. We have the best cap and invest bill that has generated billions of dollars to now to put in what we've now passed as the cleanest and greenest transportation bill in the history of the state of Washington. We now have a low carbon fuel standard. And last week, the Building Codes Council adopted a essentially a no new dirty gas provision after 2023. So we would like all of the things we've done in Washington state to become national policy. Whether that we will succeed on that federally, I don't know but it should not dissuade us. We should continue this incredible march to a clean energy economy. And I am so thrilled, Bill. I get to go around the state and every time I turn over a rock, there's a new clean energy company. And, and not just in Seattle, in Moses Lake last week, a company called Sela, they have a, a silicon anode battery that can dramatically increase the capacity of batteries for cars and the like. They just, uh, they're gonna put hundreds of people to work in, in, in Moses Lake. I was at the opening of a wind turbine farm in Southeastern Washington a couple weeks ago 
where there's enough power being generated for 38,000 homes and spending money for farmers renting other fields. At First Mode in Seattle and Soto, a company is making a fuel cell uh, powerful enough to, uh, to ultimately power a locomotive, now powering the largest truck in the world, which is now in, in South Africa. It's Silfab in Bellingham. It's the largest manufacturer of solar cells in, in the Western Hemisphere. The jobs are popping out all over. Eviation's making the first electric commercial airplane in Arlington. They just got 75 orders for a nine-seater. This is a thrilling time for our state to see the birth of a whole new suite of industries. We experienced the birth of aerospace commercially here. Uh, we experienced the birth of software. We are now experiencing the birth of a clean energy economy in the state of Washington. And I can tell you the rest of the country looks to us for leadership. I know this because I meet with my fellow governors on this. And I'm very proud of what we're doing. Our policies have been helpful. Uh, our, our skilled workforce has made this the perfect place to make this new type of equipment. And we have a great entrepreneurial culture uh, that breeds new companies. So this is an exciting time. And, and obviously, we know the threats when we see the reservoirs drying up. Uh, this morning, I saw a picture of either Lake Mead or Lake Powell, and, and it had the, all the boats that used to be on the lake are now in like this mud puddle. And I don't know, it just kind of caught me. Uh, two weeks ago, it was announced we won't have any glaciers in the Olympic National Park by 2070. Think about that. When you look to the western skyline of Seattle, you won't see glaciers anymore when my children are my age. That is just heartbreaking. So we're committed to these things. We only have one party working on these things so far. I think that's a cry and shame but we are making progress. We're gonna keep it up. Oh, we're just about to go to a, a viewer questions. Why does our state still let people hook up natural gas for heating and cooking? And we were talking about this before the show. Uh, are you gonna ban gas powered leaf blowers? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's a good question. As I indicated, the building code council just adopted a building code for commercial buildings where heating would not be hooked up after 2023. There will be considera consideration in the future months and residential uh, measures in that regard. Look, gas is a dirty fossil fuel that is both polluting the climate and putting massive amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. We cannot burn it in the decades to come. It is totally inconsistent with having any chance to keep glaciers in the Olympic mountains or salmon in our rivers. But it's also dangerous for our health. Uh, we just had a doctor from UW the other day, we had a forum on this subject, who told us that your children, if you're in a home with a gas range, have a 25% increased rate of asthma because you're breathing the particulates and the nitrous oxide that's coming off that range. It's great for cooking, we love it, but it's, it's, it's injuring the health of our children in that home and the health of the planet. And Microsoft just converted all of their gas ranges to induction ranges. And the chefs were kind of going, man, I don't know about this. I love this range. But now they love the induction ranges even more because they work really, really well. So over time, you have one of those at home. I have one at home. You work it with your finger. If you don't have <laughs> one, Governor. That's next on the list. We just got new windows and solar panels on my roof. We financed okay. that. So that's next on the list. But okay. uh, we want to help people do that. Look. In our, our cap and invest bill, we're generated billions of dollars that is going to be plowed back to incentive programs to help subsidize people to make those kind of improvements to their homes. We did it for solar. We did $130 million for solar. 
We've done it for electric cars. Those will grow over time as the cap and invest bill generates. We're charging polluters and using that money to give homeowners and businesses uh, a subsidy so that they can make these transitions. And we just can't do this uh, fast enough. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Governor, I'm watching the time. I want to get some viewer questions in. Jody wants to know, quote, I don't understand how school children can't come to school without their MMR shots, but can come to school without a COVID shot. This is something your state health board voted uh, voted against doing. Yeah. But is this is this your decision ultimately? Yeah, explain that to Jody and our viewers. Well, the Department of Health, uh, we have the, uh, the health commission that makes these decisions about what are mandatory and are what are not mandatory. They did vote unanimously not to require these at this time. And as I understand their rationale is that uh, yes, the vaccine has a beneficial impact on young children. It has been uh, quite, uh, we're very, very confident of that. But I think they had concerns about too many uh, kids not coming to school, frankly, that it would it would have a, a mini rebellion of parents taking their kids out of school. And that's just a reality that they had. And what, homeschooling? Homeschool or not school. And they've experienced this in some other states where there was a mandatory requirement Los Angeles, they abandoned that because they had so many kids just not won't come to school because the parents are have been listening to Donald Trump too much. And and so they had to weigh the educational downfall of their kids against the increased protection and, and they made that value decision. And these are hard decisions. You know, I, you know, these don't come down on the tablet from from the profits. These are and it's not decisions. yours to overrule, is that right? Is it their decision or your decision, finally? It's their decision. I probably would have the authority to make a mandate myself. I've chosen not to do that, to respect uh, their decision. And I do think yeah. it's a legitimate concern. If you're going to have thousands of kids all of a sudden pulled out of school, that that detriment has to be weighed in, in this particular uh, decision. Okay. Jody, good question. Um, we talked about cities in Western Washington um, not cooperating with the state's efforts to densify, create more housing. And a viewer wants to know, uh, name the cities. Which cities are not cooperating uh, and uh, to, to help get, create more housing and get people out of homelessness? Well, you, this, is this Jody? Was it Jody who asked that question? Jody was asking about COVID shots. This is a different question from a different viewer. Oh, well, that viewer is just trying to get me in trouble. Look, I need yes. help here. I don't, I, didn't, I don't need help getting into trouble. I need help getting out of trouble. But having said Does that, that mean you're not going to answer that viewer's question. No, no. I, look, Seattle needs to improve in this regard. It, it just you know, the vast majority of Seattle, you can't build multifamily housing, and it's impossible, right. impossible to solve this homelessness crisis if you don't have more homes. It's just kind of a simple fact. And frankly, there's a little bit of uh, I hate to say hypocrisy because I don't want to be judgmental about this. 
But sometimes we, uh, in some of our cities, bemoan the homelessness crisis and say how our hearts are rended that these poor people don't have housing and turn around and not let anybody build a duplex, particularly next to a, a light rail station. That attitude is not going to allow us to solve this problem. So uh, I believe we have an obligation to our brothers and sisters on housing, and that means we're going to have to build more housing. And yes, Seattle does have to make some changes. I think we're seeing the start of that conversation. I think Tacoma is farther along that way. I think under uh, the mayor's uh, leadership there, they have taken some action to increase density. Um, so there are places, and that's not to diminish uh, uh, Mayor Harrell. I think he's doing a great job in very difficult circumstances right now. I think he's helping his city move in this direction, but the state needs to take action because that's the only way this job is going to get done. Well, I think it's okay for you to use the word hypocrisy, personal, but uh, um, <laughs> but that, that's up to you. Um, I, here's a question coming in, uh, and I'm just seeing it in the, in the chat, so I hope I'm getting the whole thing. The question is, how can the state help tribal nations find their missing and murdered indigenous people, and how can they be protected from non-tribal kidnappers with our current laws? And you probably ought to explain to people of what, what's happening to indigenous people and why. I realize that's a, that's a lot, but that, that's the question. Well, we've, we've, had, we've had a disproportionate number of, of tribal women disappear and the pain and the agony of their families and they have experienced is obviously tremendous. So we've in, we're trying to increase our commitment or resources to investigate uh, these, these missing cases and we are doing that. Um, What's behind it? Would you, in a, in a sentence, well, can behind you tell the problem? I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. It's frustrating not to have an answer to that. Why do we have so many? Why is such a high percentage of our missing people being tribal women? I don't know the answer to that. It's probably multi-factor, like everything else. It's a problem in our society, but we have to provide the investigatory resources to provide them every protection that we can, and we are increasing that. The federal government is also increasing their commitment and resources as well. So uh, I'm, I'm pleased that we're doing all we can. Okay. Um, was that, I want to ask our producer, was that one minute, uh, like I need to wrap up right now, or one more minute of questions? <laughs> um, so this, this viewer says, you've talked around it a bit, but could you say clearly when or if the vaccine mandate might be lifted by the state? I think you answered that. You said, no, you're not. You said when it's when it's time. You don't have a, a yeah, time. It, it, yeah, what I can tell you, it's not today because of the rising yeah. cases we're having, because of the new variants approving, because of the increasing hospitalization. So we know it's not today. We'll make that decision when it makes sense that this is no longer useful to protect Washingtonians. I hope okay. that's sooner than later. Yeah, uh, maybe time for one more. Will Washington ever have an income tax? And they're talking about not not capital gains, but I think a broad income tax. Not while I'm governor, but the capital gains, I believe, is a very very fair approach to this. Where just a few thousand families would be able to pay a small percentage. The vast majority of states have a capital gains tax. We have a. a, a a level of inequity in our state, unfortunately, that defies imagination of the concentration of wealth in our state. At the same time, we have homelessness and lack of health care for some people. That is just yeah. inexcusable. So this is a very small step forward to uh, to some increased fairness. And fairness is a beautiful thing in Washington state. 
Okay, you said not while I'm governor. That's my final question, I think. I think we're going to run out of time. No Washington governor's ever even run for a fourth term, I don't think. What are the pros and cons for you personally of you running for another term? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I haven't thought about Oh, we haven't thought about it. No, I haven't. Ask Trudy. She'll tell you. She'll tell you. We we don't talk about those things. Look, I love my job uh, working with the most dynamic people in the country. I mean, yesterday or two days ago, I went to Renton High School and met these students who were in this part of our Career Connect program to learn, hopefully, to become new teachers. I get to go in and see these people inventing new technologies. I see the progress we're making with on transportation with the greenest, cleanest in you know American history, probably. This is a very exciting time to be governor. It has been difficult because of COVID, and I know there's been controversy involved in my decisions, but I think we've made them uh, in the right direction for our state. So I love my job, but listen, I'm too busy to, to, to think about that. Governor Inslee, we, in, in our final seconds, is there something you want to tell our viewers right now that they ought to know that we haven't covered? Yeah, I, I would like to say that we've come through one of the most difficult times in our state's long journey of progress. Uh, we're not through those difficult times. We have more challenges, we know. But I do think our state should be uh, emboldened and strengthened by a sense of confidence in our ability to continue the upward progress of this state. And we should not be dissuaded or discouraged a bit to continue this upward march of a better health care, a cleaner environment, more clean energy jobs, more transportation functions, uh, the ability to take care of our families and paid family leave. We're continuing right now to make major steps forward on all those things. And the one thing I would share is let's just keep this ball rolling. We're leading the country. Let's keep leading it. With or without him, we'll see about uh, the governor's future. But for now, that is the governor of the state of Washington, Jay Inslee. Governor, we're out of time, and we appreciate you taking time to join us here at CrossCut. Thank you for everybody's interest in our great state. Thanks, Bill. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Bill and the governor for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. The event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.